0: This morning is April 29th, it's 2007. Our message on this Sunday morning is called Azazel. This is a compound word in Hebrew, if there is such a thing. I'm not a linguist. I study different sources wherever I can and glean little bits of material from it. And it's a compound word that basically means to take away. Okay? So y'all remember that, and at the top of your note pages, if you're taking notes, write Azazel, and next to it, write, to take away. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. How about Hebrews 8? Let's turn there instead. Tell me when you're there. Come on, the brother's fast. The brother is fast. At the men's retreat, David, that's going to come in handy. Now, you ain't got to tell them all that. <laughs> come on. Two people are there. Where are the rest of you? How about that? I want to read you something. In the Bible, there are always settings that you can begin to read and look at and there's an obvious context to them. There's uh, times where there's a cultural context that may be less obvious to us. And there are times there's kind of a deeper spiritual meaning. One of the things that the rabbis taught in Jesus' day and before that is really neat, something that we ought to begin to adopt, is that each Scripture was like a jewel that had 70 different sides or cuts to it. And that every time you turned it a little bit, you would see a slightly different reflection of beauty and light. So each one of these Scriptures that we'll look at, there are multiple ways to look at that ought to reflect the beauty and the glory of God. In fact, sometimes the rabbis would come across a Scripture. Maybe not very often. Sometimes that they would go, you know, Rabbi Fred, Rabbi Stevens, I don't know what this means. And then they would pray together in unity and they would say, bless you, O Lord, for this mystery, for you will reveal it to us. They celebrated the mysteries in the Word rather than look at them as contradictions and be angry. Because they ultimately trusted God. Their lives had been lives that trusted God and they knew from past experience He would reveal truth to them. How beautiful is that? Come on. Saints, we're going to read today from an Eastern book and we are Western people. We're taught to put things in lists, points and counterpoints. We're taught to make uh, logic that builds precepts upon precepts looking at any opportunity for a flaw in the logic. Eastern peoples were not built this way. They were taught to paint beautiful, vivid pictures, things that would impact your mind, and repeated them year after year, and in their stories and in their songs, trying to give you a visual image of something that words are hard to express. Do you understand what I'm saying? So today, we're going to paint a picture for you. It's going to be a little bit of a departure because it's not a lecture where you neatly find the message and go, point A obviously leads us into point B, which obviously leads us into point C. It's going to be a beautiful mosaic, if you will, of spiritual truth. Amen? Can you all try to loosen up with me and go there? All right. You all in Hebrews 8? In Hebrews 8, looking at the fifth verse, I just want to submit to you an idea as a starting place. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. What I want to suggest is an idea. Is that when Moses began to build what we've now come to know as Moses' tabernacle... He saw into the heavens while on the mountain something that existed in the heavens. And when He saw this, He began to write about it. Then the Israelites built this tabernacle. And when they built it, what we had was not perfect, but it was like a copy of... You know, each time you copy something, it seems to degrade a little bit on our modern Xerox-type machines. It was an imperfect copy of something that is perfect in heaven. Are you with me so far? So when we look at this thing on earth, it is like glimpsing into the heavens. Now, the Hebrew concept of heaven is a little different than ours. I've been teaching you for many weeks. They believed that the kingdom of heaven originated with God and was extending to the earth to envelop it. They didn't see it as a planet far, far away in a galaxy a long time ago. They didn't see it that way. They saw it as something real, tangible, recognizing even in their daily prayer the King of the universe rule extending to their life. But when they tried to describe it and paint the picture of it, they would say there's the atmosphere, and they called that heaven. They called it like a first heaven, if you will. Then they said there's the starry realm, and they called that heaven, like a second heaven, as if we were going up rungs of a ladder. And then they said there is some place in or beyond the starry realm that they referred to as the third heaven. This was the place where God alone dwelt. And in their thoughts, when they ascended to Jerusalem and sang songs of ascent, have you ever read in Psalms and it says songs of ascent? They were singing these songs, believing that as they ascended to the temple on earth, that was a copy of what was in the heavens, that they were somehow ascending spiritually, getting a little closer to God. Today, I want to take you just a little closer as we examine these copies on earth. Amen? Amen. I mean, why are you here in church, saints? If not to contact God, if not to get just a little closer, then why would we be here? We want our lives to brush with the divine. We want to take that and brush with other people so that it will spread like leaven through a whole loaf. Isn't that what this walks about? I know men have reduced it to ridiculous rituals and rules that when everybody looks at it, they go, oh, I don't even want that. Don't rub that on me. Get away from me. You Christians stay in your own little category. But this is not how God intended it. This whole book is about man in communion with God falling from that communion and being restored to it because we serve a God who is trying to draw us in to His presence. And He's teaching us through these beautiful, vivid pictures in the Bible of how to do that. So that's what we want to look at. Are you all with me so far? Turn with me to Leviticus 16. You say, oh, preacher, you're going to put us to sleep with Leviticus. Well, I've put you to sleep with other things before, but you won't sleep through this today, I promise. There. Come on. Two people are there. Where are the rest of you? There. A place called there. Whoa! Let's read a couple verses from Leviticus. Then I want to talk to you, give you some background on this. Have you ever been reading through the Old Testament and said... Oh, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. We killed lots of stuff. There was blood everywhere. And, dear God, just get me to the New Testament. (laughs) Right? In fact, how many times have you started off in the book of Genesis and said, I'm going to read the whole Word of God? Got to numbers and stopped. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. We need to learn to look with heavenly eyes at this book, saints. There is more going on that just meets the eye. That's that Transformers theme from the 80's cartoon that most of you don't know what I'm talking about. Alright, y'all in Leviticus 16? So y'all are there. Okay, Leviticus 16 starting in the first verse. The Lord spoke to Moshe. (laughs) Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The teachers call this a tetratomagron. This is a word inserted in the text because they didn't want to print the word Yahweh. They wanted to treat God with such reverence that they didn't use His name in a frivolous manner. So they substituted this word. It means the covenant God. The God who is drawing you into relationship. The God who always was, always is, and always will be. So Yahweh said to Moshe, Moshe is the Hebrew word for Moses, how would you feel if we took all of the American stories? Right? Paul Revere. Everybody knows who Paul Revere is? but we changed his name to Shaul Riviana. How would you feel about that? You'd go, that's not his name, right? It would bother you. These are Hebrew people, and we've Americanized their names. Now, God's put up with that. And it's okay, I'm not telling you you have to change it. But I'm trying to begin to change that dial. We're Western people reading an Eastern book. You all with me? Yahweh said to Moshe after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. (laughs) That's a long story. The Lord said to Moshe, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This brings us to our first giant obstacle. God appears in a specific place at a specific time for the purpose of meeting with His people. Have you ever sat and pondered the the problems in the world? Children dying in this part of the world? People never heard the Gospel in this part of the world? God is trying to reach out to His creation that He made and saints that He said was very good. Everything in it, He made and said was good. He's reaching out to them. But there is a way in which we must respond. We cannot come to Him on our own terms. It doesn't work that way. That would make you God and not Him. When you say Lord, it means He's your owner and controller. He wants to meet with you, but He will only do it on His terms. Why? Because He's God. You go try to schedule a meeting with an important diplomat and tell him you want to meet at Burger King. You want the attire to be flip-flops and tank tops. Right? You think He'll come? If you're going to meet with somebody who outranks you in the social sphere, you meet on their terms, don't you? God outranks us all. He has a right as the Creator to tell us how He wants us to commune with Him. And He repeats this story over and over in many different ways in the Bible, hoping to get it to His people. So Yahweh speaking to Moshe, and He says, I dwell over this atonement cover. Now, this atonement cover is on the top of an ark. This ark represents Jesus and everything else in this meeting place represents Jesus. There's a building that is a copy of something that's in heaven. Let me walk you through the articles real quickly. There's a bronze altar. This is a place where sacrifice occurred. It is a copy of something in heaven. I don't know why there's an altar in heaven. That's, I actually do. But that's something that you'll get to study. There's something on earth that's a copy of what's in heaven. An altar. An altar. There's a bronze laver for washing. Bronze in the Bible was always symbolic of of, uh, judgment. You looked into this laver with blood on your face from a sacrifice and you washed. This was to remind you something. Sin causes death and you need to be cleaned from this. Saints, do you really need to be reminded of that or can you just watch the news? Sin causes death. Watch this. Showbread. They put out bread in God's presence every day trying to teach people. In fact, that Hebrew word is ponem. And it means the edification or the feeding that you get from being in the presence of God. They put bread there, but it represented you communing with God, being fed from being in His presence. Do you remember that Jesus said in John 6, I am the true bread that came from heaven? Do you remember that? He said, I am the bread of life. Jesus is everything in this tabernacle if you look carefully. The next, there was an altar of incense that represents the prayer of the saints, the intercession of a mediator between God and man. There's a lampstand. What do lamps do? They light, right? Do you remember that Jesus said, I am the light of the world? Right? What did he say about Christians? He said, You are the light of the world. Everything in this building represents Jesus and that's not what we're teaching on today. I just want to begin to build a picture. These things were not chosen by happenstance. God put a setting. He shows up in this setting so that everything there in some way glorifies Him. Everything there in some way speaks a message of Him. Some way through your ears, through your eyes, even incense, the aroma, to food that you would taste. He's trying to impact you. Anybody in here ever been Teachers? even Sunday school teachers, small camp teachers, something. When you're trying to impact people, the more gates you can get it through, the more senses you can touch, the more impacting it is. We serve a God who understands that because He created you a certain way. So He picked colors. He picked textures. He picked smells. He picked rituals repeated over and over and over to impact people because He's reaching out to mankind. Do you understand this is a picture of a God who wants to meet with you? Okay? Moving on from the things that are in this, I want to read you something. Well, I guess I need to tell you about feasts real quickly. Jews practice seven feasts a year. Seven feasts. We start with Passover. We move from Passover right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I've taught extensively on these things, but I'm going to get to a feast here in a second. From Passover, Unleavened bread, we move to first fruits. From first fruits, we move to Pentecost. From Pentecost, there is a long wait where we're waiting for trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, to sound in the sky. Now, Rosh Hashanah is something that's worth telling you about. These are called the ten days of awe. Now, I want you to get this. When I tell a little kid, hey, we're going to celebrate Fourth of July, what do you think about? Fireworks, Fireworks right? Say, we're going to celebrate Christmas. What does the world think about? Fireworks. Fat guy and gifts, right? We, we're going to celebrate Halloween. What do you think about? Candy. In our culture, there are festivals that we're calling holidays, comes from the word holy days, that our children grow up with certain perceptions about. They're just ingrained. They may not know all of the history, but when you think of Thanksgiving, you think of turkeys and cranberry sauce, right? And all the. Ooh, I'm getting hungry, right? You think about those things. Each one of these feasts had certain connotations, and Rosh Hashanah was ten days of awe. This was a time when Israel began to look inwardly. They were looking at themselves because the day of atonement was coming. There would be a day when man would meet with God, and they wanted to prepare for this day when man met with God. So they set aside ten days where they sounded trumpets that were announcing, The day of atonement is coming. And the little kids would start to get excited. But in this deep introspection, they would begin to examine their own lives very closely. For ten days, as they're looking in the mirror of the Word, they're examining the ways as a community they may have failed God, where He had drawn near to them, but they didn't respond. Saints, if you've never had a serious time in your life, when you look into the mirror of God's Word and spend some serious time wondering how you measure up, and dwelling and thinking about God wanting to meet with you, but how have you treated Him? Something's wrong. Israel did this every year. And they look forward to each one of these feasts for different reasons. Now, I want to tell you something else. We're going to write a few words on the board. How would you sound this one out? Mikra. That is the word for feast or festival in Hebrew, right? No big deal, right? Feast, festival. No biggie. Wow. Except in Hebrew, it also means rehearsal. Now saints, why do you have a rehearsal dinner before a wedding? You rehearse to get it right. In fact, you rehearse on one night for the next day because the ceremony is so important, you don't want to mess it up. So if I give you seven rehearsals and tell you to repeat them for 1,600 years, am I trying to teach you something? God is trying to teach His people through the feasts or festivals, the mikras, about a rehearsal because there is a day when the fulfillment will come. Now, we can celebrate anniversaries. That's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with once the day of fulfillment comes, continuing to celebrate it like an anniversary. But all of these are pointing to one thing. So that when we point to a Passover lamb, what do we see in Christ? We see Jesus, our Passover lamb. We rehearsed so that we would recognize the event. Amen? All right. As we move on from this Day of Atonement and this introspection, we want to read Leviticus 16 some more. Look at the third verse. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burn offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so He must bathe Himself. That word in Greek would be baptism. Baptizo. In Hebrew, this is mikvah. It's a ceremonial washing. He's to bathe Himself with water before He puts them on. From, from the Israelite community, He is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. This is a picture of God. Wanting to dwell with man, but He requires that man's sin be dealt with first. This is what this is teaching. But I want to get into that a little more with you. When you read that he had linen clothes or he had a turban on his head, to us this is so foreign from our culture and you never having seen it, to us it's just details. It's like saying he wore corduroy pants and, I don't know, duckhead shirts or... You can tell how long it's been since I've been shopping, right? Yeah. In my day, it was Jabot jeans, and they had to be folded over and pegged a certain way, right? Yeah. He was dressed a certain way for a reason. In fact, I want to read you an ancient description. This is somebody writing at the time of Jesus about the history of the Jewish people from a Jewish perspective, talking about the priest's dress on the Day of Atonement. I want you to hear this. This is really neat. Now, these are letters of Aristius. These are pages 70 or 97 through 99. I'm going to give you some sources because I don't want you to think I made this stuff up. This is this good. This priestly dress is meant to communicate something. Listen to what this writer says it communicates. He was girded with a girdle of conspicuous beauty, woven in the most beautiful colors. On his breast, he wore the oracle of God, as it is called. "...on which twelve stones of different kinds were inset, fastened together with gold, containing the names of the leaders of the tribes according to their original order, each one flashing in an indescribable way in its own particular color." Pause there for a second. This priest has got on him twelve different stones. On these stones are the names of the leaders of the tribes of Israel, And they sparkle in their own ways. Now, Josephus, writing in the book of the Antiquities to the Jews, of the Jews, begins to describe their 12 stones. He says, The Greeks have something. All over the world, the Greeks point to these things in the heavens, they point to them in their constellations. And all over the world, they have designated 12 constellations. Not important, right? except that in Hebrew thought God dwells someplace just beyond the stars and He's surrounded by these twelve specific groupings of stars that they named. In fact, when I say Virgo, what does that make you think of? Around the world, it has different names in different languages, but they all mean virgin. Do you think God might be trying to communicate something through these stars? Twelve groupings. What do the Greeks call it? The zodiac. Now, I want to submit to you today something about this. I am not an astrologist. I don't read horoscopes. But perhaps that's an example of something that was once godly that is now been corrupted. In fact, when you read the book of Genesis, don't we see that these were given to us for signs and seasons? And by the way, those guys who weren't Jews, who traveled across the globe, men from the East, who are called magicians or magi, how did they know about Jesus? They saw His star appear. So the Hebrews began to teach about God that He was surrounded by 12 groupings of the starry host. The Greeks called this the Zodiac. To the Hebrews, they were just constellations. And if God who dwelt in a heavenly place was going to meet with people on earth, He needed to be surrounded by 12 specific groupings. How many tribes were there in Israel? Are they told where to camp in specific places in the Bible? Yeah, it even forms a neat little picture if you map them out of a cross with God in the center. How amazing is that? So if the God of the heavens wants to meet with men on earth, He wants to surround Himself with something that is a shadow or a copy of what's going on in the heavens. And He needs a specific kind of man. One who Himself has been made clean. One who Himself bears on Him something that is of divine nature. Amen? Are we preaching here? Are you beginning to see a picture painting here that 2,000 years later you know an answer to, but then it's just a picture in the distance? Let me keep reading. On his head he wore a tiara. Now today that's laughable, but this is a crown. It's a special crown. As it is called, and upon the middle of his forehead, a turban, the royal diadem full of glory with the name of God inscribed in sacred letters on a plate of gold, having been judged worthy to wear these emblems in the menstruations, their appearance created such awe and confusion of mind as to make one feel that on on one hand, he had come into the presence of a man who belonged to some other world. This is an ancient historian after viewing the high priest going, when I examined what he had on him, And I looked at the colors and I looked at the things about them. It was as if it was communicating to me this guy has stepped here out of another world. What might God be trying to communicate with this, I ask you. He says He dwells among the starry host, twelve groupings of them. But when He dwells on earth, He told twelve tribes where to be placed. He said, I want a special man one man among all of this nation, to stand up and represent me as a mediator between God and man. This special man must wear on himself a sign that he's of heavenly substance. It was meant to create the appearance that somehow, somewhere in this special place where God was dwelling, the heavens had met the earth. How special is that? Think of this in terms of pictures with me for a moment. Is God trying to paint a picture for the people of a way to meet with Him? And the first requirement was that the man of God, the high priest, needed to be sinless. He had to atone for his sin before he could atone for anyone else's. Amen? Are you with me? Yes. Mm. God wants to dwell with His people. He's looking for a way to impact your life. Turn with me to Leviticus 16.6. Tell me, are you there? Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Hold up here for a second. This priest, he makes atonement for himself. Then he takes two goats for what? A sin offering. Not two sin offerings. There are two goats, but one sin offering. I'm going to submit to you today as we paint this picture that these two goats both speak of a same task, but in different ways. If we're going to look at the Scripture and see that it has 70 different sides to it, one of the things that I want you to notice here is there are two goats. Different things are said about these goats, but they speak to one sin offering. Amen? Can you follow me there for a minute? All right, watch this. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. you have a footnote there? Do you have a footnote there? Some of you have a footnote there. And where it says scapegoat, you have a footnote that says Azazel. NIV says the goat of removal. What's another way to say remove? Take away. When we translate from some languages, we have multiple words. For instance, if you want to tell somebody in Greek, I love you, there's about seven different ways to say it, and they mean vastly different things. In Hebrew, this part, az, is about a goat. This part, azel, means take away. Together, this compound word means a goat that takes away. So we're going to carry two goats up to the temple. We're going to cast lots. One of them is going to belong to the Lord. Aaron shall bring the goat whose Lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat, as an Azazel. Now, we have two goats here, right? One is going to have its neck cut. Its blood, in a very special way, is going to be both sprinkled and, hear these words, poured out for Israel. You heard me? Poured. Poured out. In fact, almost everything in this temple was cleansed by blood and water but they took the blood of this animal and poured it on an atonement cover. The atonement cover sits on top of an ark. Above the ark, God is said to dwell. The thought was that God would look down and see this blood of atonement covering the ark of God, covering the top of this. What was in the ark? Well, in the ark was all three things that represented Jesus. Aaron's staff that budded, a jar of manna, and the commandments of God, the mitzvahs, now it's popular thought and it's wrong so I want to correct this that God's blood was or the blood was poured on top of this atonement so that God would not see broken commandments in this ark have you ever heard that the broken tablets were not placed in the ark what was placed in the ark are two complete and whole tablets you know why because when looking at the right way to live the law the righteous instruction from God it can only be made complete and can only be atoning in your life with blood. And the Bible teaches this. In Genesis 9, it says, without blood there is no remission of sin. It says it in Hebrews and says it in Leviticus 17. Are you with me? Okay. So one goat's going to die. What happens to the other goat? Well, let's read. Start in the 20th verse. What does Azazel mean? Come on, the rest of you. What does Azazel mean? To take away. Azazel. Y'all in the 20th verse? You still awake? Are you still with me? Don't let me waste this good message on people who are sleeping. Y'all with me? When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. One goat's death atones for Israel, and another goat's life carries Sin away for Israel. Are you following? Stop reading for a minute. Y'all make eye contact with me. Think about this. All year long. In a room this size, this is very sad, but it's true. In a room this size, the chances are there are somebody in here struggling with internet pornography. In a room this size, the chances are there's someone being tempted to commit adultery. In a room this size, There are people who have been molested or in other ways hurt. That's not me being a psychic or prophetic. That's just true about any group of people in a room this size. You're an Israelite. You're 1600 B.C., middle of the year. You're carrying around this horrible junk that is weighing you down. It hurts. Every time you think about drawing near to God, what you begin to think about is all the reasons I can't all the reasons I'm unworthy, all the reason I'm heavy laden. We enter into the ten days of awe and what are you thinking about? You're thinking about all the junk that you brought. Do you think you're looking forward to some goat that will carry away your sin? you think that might be worth partying about afterwards? Y'all keep that in mind as we read this. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites. Put your finger there. They're going to carry a little goat up. All of the people have been waiting ten days. Could you build some anticipation over ten days? Could you soul search for ten days? Saints, in America we have a hard time praying for an hour. Can you imagine ten days? Ten days, you've been thinking about the garbage. I think the Hebrew word is crap. No, I'm kidding.
1: That has weighed
0: you down. Every time you want to draw near to God, believing that there is a place on earth, there is a way, there is some way where the earth can touch the divine, some way you can be saved, some way you can be rescued from yourself. What stands in your way? All of this stuff that you don't want to do and you find yourself doing. And every time you want to step out and be God's man, every time you want to step out and do something for God, there is an accuser right there telling you, you can't. You can't. I know what you've been doing. You're weighed down. And sometimes it's not what you did. It's what other people did to you. You want to participate in church, but you were in church and somebody hurt you. I can't tell you living in Louisiana how many men that I got to know that were scared of church because priests had done horrible things to them. Every year in Israel, there was a moment when they were waiting for a priest to come and put two hands on the head of an animal. Symbolic gesture of something. The two hands laid on this goat and he would begin to confess the sin of all of Israel. His sin's already been dealt with. Now it's time to confess. If this was America, what would you be confessing? Millions of children that are aborted? What would you be confessing? That we let criminals go and we imprison righteous people sometimes? What is it that we would be confessing? How long would this take? Hmm. Let me tell you about something real quick. There's a scarlet cord that the Bible doesn't mention. But there's a treatise. You know what a treatise is? This is an extended discussion. It appears in both the Mishnah and the Talmud and some other books I can't pronounce, so I won't bore you with them. It's regarding the Day of Atonement and it's been titled Yami. Okay? So when you Google this, because I know you'll all go research every word I tell you, right? When you Google this, It will appear in the writings of Yami, which is a treatise about what happened on the Day of Atonement. These are Jewish sages that wrote these things down through the years so we would know. And there was a particular one. His name was Rabbi Ishmael. What he said is, we put on this goat to identify it as the scapegoat, to paint a picture for everyone to see, a scarlet cord. We would go take a cord, we would dip it in red ink so that it was thoroughly, thoroughly stained. Then we would go put it on the head of this goat. So while the high priest is laying his hands on the head of this animal, he's putting on it a scarlet cord that represents all of the sin of the Israelite community. It's good for everybody but the goat, right? Yeah. Pick up with me in 21. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the wickedness and the rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, every way they miss God, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. Now, come on, saints. In the church, everybody's got jobs, right? I told you about those like Dina who picked up at the crawfish boil. She went around helping people with garbage and everything else, right? That was assigned to her by the Spirit. Nobody told her to do it. Well, everybody has a role. Everybody has a task. Who wants the task of leading a thin-laden goat out into the desert? No Jew wanted the task. None did want you to hear me here, saints. They picked a Gentile to do it. They said, oh, come on. We don't want one of God's chosen people walking with this sin-laden goat way out into the desert until he wanders off. Let's let a Gentile do it. A man appointed for the task. Remember that. A man appointed for the task. Pick up in verse 22. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place. And the man shall release it into the desert. Saints, I want you to think about this. If we were able, I'd have brought a goat in here today. we got a goat sitting right here in front of the pulpit. Eric is leaning down. He's praying over this goat. He's dressed in a way that is communicating to you that the divine in some way is touching the earth, something miraculous is going to happen. And in a moment, because of God's hand and His desire to meet with you, His desire to impact your life, He's miraculously going to transfer all your junk onto this animal. And after ten days of searching to find all the leaven in your life, it is suddenly going to be lifted. How might you feel? Would that be a relief? If you don't know what a relief that is, you have not been born again no matter what your mama says or your Bible teachers have told you. I know exactly. It's like being let out of jail. They're looking forward to this. Some Gentile leads this goat out. Turn with me to Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, we have this curious Scripture. You remember I told you the scarlet cord is not mentioned in the Bible. At least not the one put on the goat. Right? Mandy remembers. Who else remembers that I told you that? Amen. A few of you are still awake and not mad at pastor. Saints, so many times I got heavy-handed words for you. So many times I am pounding on you to put into practice what you've professed. You should find this one to be like dessert. This is candy when you think about it. This is the sweetest part of the Word. Saints, we're painting a picture of a benevolent God that wants to meet with people, but it must be done in a certain way. Sin has to be dealt with. God desires to dwell on the earth with you. That is no small thing. We're talking about a guy who dwells in the most high and lofty places. And Isaiah 57 says he also dwells in the hearts of the lowly and contrite people. Why? To show them how bad they are? Isaiah 57 says no. No to strengthen them, to heal the contrite hearts and strengthen the spirit of those who are weary. Are you in Isaiah? First chapter of Isaiah. Eighteenth verse. Who else is there? Come on, are you there? Come now, let us reason together. This is God speaking. Though your sins are like scarlet. What color was that cord? Scarlet. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool, if you are willing and obedient. Saints, are you hearing me? What might Isaiah have had in mind? Well, I want to tell you the rest of this story about this scarlet cord. Rabbi Ishmael says that they put the cord on the head of the goat. It had stained red. Interestingly enough, when Isaiah says this, he says, a scarlet cord. And then it's translated crimson. The word for crimson is the indelible ink made from a particular kind of worm where they got this color from. It's called a tola worm. He says, though even red like something dipped in indelible ink, I will make it white. Where might Isaiah have got this idea from? Well, Rabbi Ishmael says when they put this cord on the head of the goat, this cord dipped in indelible ink and put on the head of the goat, as they led the goat off, they put the cord on the door of the temple and later the gate of the city. Why would you do that?
1: Remind everybody how
0: bad they are, right? No, that's what American church is for. It's not what God was about. Because... The writers record that a miracle occurred. A miracle that perhaps Isaiah saw and was referring to. For hundreds of years, year after year, the people watched this scenario and the cord turned white. The Mishnah records that year after year, this cord miraculously turned white. What do you think that symbolized in painting this picture to God's people? It worked. When the goat left the building, so did your garbage. Come on, you do not go... Yeah. That would feel good, wouldn't it? Yeah. We could have something in here that you could see that when we put our hands on His head, the garbage that you did fell on it. And when it left the building, you were white again. White. Wouldn't it be good if we, people not looking for God, had access to something like that? Because this was just for the 12 tribes that God dwelt among. Wouldn't that be good? Don't let me forget that scarlet cord. There's more to the story. Turn with me to John 1. You all surprised? We're in the New Testament. What's wrong with us? I love the New Testament with all of my heart. But you're going to find out today that the New Testament refers to the Old on every page. John 1, 29. Are you there? there? John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Yeshua coming toward Him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Exodus 12 tells us that if you're going to make a sin offering... If you're going to offer a passover lamb for death to pass you over that you might be in life, it can come from either the goats or the lambs. But because God put the word lamb first, the Jews preferred the lamb. The word is see or say, S E H or phonetically S A Y. Can come from either. Behold, the lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. It's just a thought that turns me to John 11. In John 11, tell me, are you there? There. Who else is there? There. Come on, left side of the room. Are you all there? There. Brandon, you there? All right. John 11, look at verse 47. Then the chief priest, they were always Sadducees, by the way, and the Pharisees called the meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. These Sadducees who were the aristocrats in Israel were very concerned. This leader who is teaching the people that the Word of God is the most important thing and telling them, you walk it out like I'm walking it. If the Romans see this and see how all the people are thronging to Him, they'll come and take away our temple. Now, there's a reason that they were worried about this. You remember these heavenly garments I was telling you about? You know where they were kept in the time of Jesus? With the high priest, right? No. To show Israel how much they were under the foot of the Romans, there was a man appointed for a special task. His name was Pilate. He was the governor in the region. Pilate took the chief priest's garments and he kept them under Roman guard in a place called the Praetorium outside of a fortress named after a Roman goddess named Diana. Some interesting similarities between her and some people's view of Mary, but that's another message. He had the heavenly garments. Do you think that the chief priests were a little nervous about their positions? Hmm. Well, what did he say here? Let's see. Verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, he's supposed to be the guy who is mediating between God and man, spoke up, you know nothing at all. Sounds just like every Bible teacher I ever knew. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than a whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. This is written many years after the event. And John is realizing when he's writing it by revelation in the Holy Ghost, Caiaphas said this and didn't know what he was saying. Come on, can you talk about God's deep wisdom here? If you think that is good. No, we ought not do it. Do you want to close here?
1: No. No? no.
0: You sure? Yeah. Why'd we title this thing Azazel? Hmm. I don't know. This New Testament's a good book, but the old man, just dusty, boring. Why even read it? Hmm? You want to sit and ponder that for a while? No, you get that in every church you've been in, haven't you? You just want to sit here for a while? You want more? Look at John 19. I'm tired. I mean, we could just sit down and have a nap. No? Look at me, saints. All of you look at me. Make eye contact. Promise me something. You're going to read what I tell you to read here and you're not going to read ahead. Amen? Amen. Amen. You sneaky people. Y'all are students that will read the last chapter and look for cliff notes. I know you. Then Pilate. This is the first verse. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Who had a crown of thorns placed on Jesus' head? Pilate, a man who's also in possession of the high priest's garments. If I pushed into your head Victor's thorns right on top of your head, what color would come out? Could we call that scarlet or crimson red? think that that might make the shape, just perhaps, of a scarlet cord tied together to wrap around a head? Well, there's something in Jewish thought called midrash, right? No, you have no idea. A rash? I got one of those back here somewhere. Midrash. What midrash is, is when you're reading the word, you're reading a particular verse, and all of a sudden go, whoa, this is beginning to remind me of another verse. Now, we don't have to do that because our commentators and their wisdom have given us cross references. But what happens if they didn't get the midrash? Right? What if all they know how to do is use a computer to search for a word? What if there was a beautiful, vivid picture being painted that you had to have an Eastern mind to understand? Oh, wow. What about? Well, look at John 19, the 14th verse. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Wait, what's happening? Pilate, who has the garments of the high priest, although they're not on, comes out and he presents somebody who has a scarlet cord on their head, and he says, Here is your king. What did the people say? I can't quite read that. I don't have my glasses. Take him, Take him away. away. This New Testament came down to you in Greek. It makes no sense in Greek. But they were not Greek-speaking people. What kind of people were they? Hebrew. Hebrews. And in Hebrew, how do you say, take him away? i give you a hint. Ah, uh, the oh. They didn't know what they were doing just like Caiaphas didn't know what he was doing when he prophesied. It's better for one man to die than the whole nation perish. They didn't know what they were doing, but when they were presented with a king, they said, no, he's our Ah, uh, Zazel. He is our burden bearer. He has come to take away our sin. Even in the Jewish rejection of the Messiah, they proclaimed the truth about the Messiah because there are people chosen by God. We live in a day when movies like The Passion of the Christ has stirred people's thoughts. and They go, Oh, who's culpable in killing the Christ? Was it the Gentile Romans? Or was it the Jewish people? And the Jews are rightly sensitive about this because ignorant Gentiles led by satanic churches have persecuted them for centuries. Who was the scapegoat for? Israel. Who killed the scapegoat and the atonement goat? Israel. Killed by Israel? For Israel? But you remember there was a man for the task, somebody to lead that scapegoat out to a solitary place? It was always a Gentile. Who led Jesus to the cross? Gentiles. Roman soldiers led Him right to the cross, the Azazel. You remember there were two offerings though. One whose blood was poured out and one whose life bore sins. But one sin offering. Jesus' is His blood was poured out but also He is your Azazel, something that covered your sin and removed your sin. Saints, if you had been waiting, if you had been waiting all year for the opportunity to unload something that you felt bad about, maybe in your teenage years one of your friends died and it's bothered you all of your life. Maybe you did something indecent or something indecent was done for you how much would you want to see the goat leave the building? That scarlet cord? There's a copy of the Talmud called the Babylonian Talmud. This is comprised, and this is very important, this is comprised after the time of Jesus. You got me? So we would call it A.D., after his death. That's not what A.D. stands for, but you follow me. Santa no Domini, Latin for the year of our Lord. Why everything was given to us in Latin is another sad message. In this Babylonian Talmud, it says that every year that scarlet cord changed white. Every year. Just like I told you that the Treatise Yami says that. Except it says... That around the 70th year when the temple was destroyed, you could look back, and for the previous some odd 40 years, the court had not changed colors. My math's not so good. If we take 70 when the temple is destroyed, and we subtract from it somewhere around about 40, what year are we in? The year of our Lord. The year of our Lord. That's right, that's when Jesus was born. Around what age do we think he died? 30 to 33? Why do you think the cord stopped turning white when it was nailed to the door of the temple? Because God was proclaiming to the whole nation, your Azazel has already come. You announced it with your own mouths. You said, take Him away. Lead Him to a solitary place by Gentiles. Take Him out there. The atoning blood has already been poured out. How on earth could this be good news for you, saints? How on earth could it be good news? Because Israel had to do this year after year. Each year loading up garbage. Filthy stuff left in the pan after cooking. In Lafayette we'd say du, Nastiness. And each year waiting for a chance to unload it somewhere so that you could be free. But Hebrews 9 says Jesus has done this. Come on, man. Once for all. There is a scapegoat that you can put your hands on and unload everything one time
1: forever.
0: Killed by Israel for Israel. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Is that deep sense of quiet that's come over the room? Because you're thinking? Let it be your Rosh Hashanah today. Spend some time in awe of God thinking about what in your life is preventing you from meeting with the God who so badly wants to meet with you. Whether you're impressed with all the ancient writings or with the delivery of a message makes no difference. What matters is that your life your dust of the earth is somehow breathed into by the divine. There is a high priest who has come and laid his hand upon both men and God. He's done all of the hard work. What would you do? You all in Isaiah 53? Yes. Contemplate on these verses. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. You think they picked that Azazel goat because they thought it was just the best-looking goat out there? It had to be free from blemish. But they thought about this goat in such nasty ways that instead of letting it live and wander in the desert, they eventually devised ways to kill it. God never told them to kill it, but they did. Why do you think they killed it? They wanted to make sure that goat did not wander back into camp. You want to know that your sin is gone and will never return? The Azazel died for you. He was both goats. There is a way to make sure it never comes back, but you have to be willing to unload what's on your heart right onto it. How long will you be heavy laden? How long will you carry around garbage you were never meant to carry? God wants you in communion with Him and the only thing that stands between you and Him is the crap that you've allowed to pile up in your heart. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed by Israel, for Israel. We're all like sheep we've gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I wonder where Peter got the idea that he bore our sins. I wonder where Paul got the idea that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Could it be that they looked at this king and saw the scarlet cord on his head and the people's cry, Azazel and realized that the Jewish nation was performing in some strange way the will of God. Killed by Israel, for Israel. But the special blessing is that it brings life to you. Salvation first for the Jew and then the Gentile. Judgment first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But if their stumbling has meant life coming to us, What will it be like when that whole nation comes alive and realizes what they've done? It'll be just like Zechariah said. They will mourn like somebody mourning for an only son as they look upon the one they pierced. And God will open a fountain of righteousness and all Israel will be saved. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep before her shears is silent... So he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and who can speak of his descendants for he was cut off from the land of the living from the transgression of my, for the transgression of my people he was stricken he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Saints, we are going to begin to worship. We are going to begin a time, and I want you to get this. You in this message have had a chance to look into the mirror of God's Word. This is your Rosh Hashanah. This is the time when you are waiting with anticipation to lay the garbage that you've carried around on someone. Because you know what happened immediately after the Day of Atonement? They partied in the biggest possible way. Do you know why? They felt free for the first time all year. They could walk out and say, though we were scarlet, though we were as crimson as the red ink that comes from a Tola worm, He has made us white as snow. Today, you have a chance. The Azazel has already come. They've already pronounced Him that. There has already been the opportunity the question is will you take advantage of it and if you think saints, that I'm just talking about salvation they did this every year because God's people need to be cleaned over and over and over again we have a way of soiling our white cord the divine has touched the earth you had a chance to taste of the heavenly kingdom now what will your response be I'm going to ask you to pray with me. I'm going to ask you to contemplate what you've carried way too long. Resentment for parents, hurt feelings, impurity of some kind. And then, in our worship, begin to, in your mind, unload this onto the only one that has ever come who was already clean as a high priest. Didn't need to be sacrifice for. He was the sacrifice. The only one that has ever come that you'll never have to see sacrificed again. The only one that has ever come that didn't need special garments to show His divine nature in the heavens touching the earth. The only one that has ever come to make God's dwelling with men. Jesus came that God might dwell in your life. How long are you going to let a guilt offering stand between you and that God? We're going to worship. His blood is going to cleanse you. And then we are going to celebrate, what did Prince say, like it was 1999. Except 1999 already came and went. Because we're going to be clean. I should have had a communion table here today. But you know what? It's not about crackers and juice. It's about communing with God. One more thing, that animal whose blood was poured out. You remember that? Poured out. What did Jesus say in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? This is the blood of my covenant poured out for you. Y'all stand to your feet. We're going to pray and then begin to worship.